Good morning. Today's scripture is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'll give you a moment to find it, and when you find it, if you'll please stand. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. What a blessing it is for us to be able to open up our words and have the freedom, to, the word of God, and have the freedom to do that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 reads as follows. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage, against, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to tell you about an upcoming opportunity. One of our strategies for discipleship here at College Park Fishers is equipping the church. And what we mean by that is we not only want to equip you personally of how do I grow and mature in Christ, but we want to equip you how do I serve other people? How do I care for the body? How do I build one another up in Christ? And so starting on February 5th, we're doing a four-week class on how to study the Bible. So if you've ever wondered, you know, I opened the Word of God, I don't really know what I'm doing, um, if you've wondered, how do I get more skills? Over these four weeks, we're going to teach you basic things about reading God's Word, how to understand it, and then how to live it out. That class will be taught by Darren Buffkin. He's actually in New Zealand right now teaching this um, to some college students. So you can sign up online, or you can email me to get more information, but it'll start February 5th during the 9 o'clock service, and it will go for four weeks. We'll have a couple more classes starting in April. One will be on evangelism by Dan Hillen. And then there will be a follow-up to the How to Study the Bible class on Philippians. So the goal is you learn how to study God's Word, and then in the Philippians class, we'll actually do that together. And our, our teacher for the Philippians class is Rob Loy. And Rob Loy's coming up. He's going to be our guest speaker today. Rob's been at College Park for 30 years, he said this morning, and that's a really long time for someone who's 32. Uh, hard to imagine that long. Um, he's been an elder at College Park. His, his wife, Cheryl, and daughter Lucy come to College Park Fishers, and Rob is just a great teacher of God's Word. Um, it's been a, it's a pleasure and a blessing to sit under his teaching through like newcomer retreat, through classes at North Indy, and now here at Fishers. So listen up and lean into God's Word and hear what he has to say to you today. Thank you, Dustin. Good morning. It, uh, I said this in the first service too, but it, it is a little humbling to know that I started coming to College Park before two-thirds of the leadership at this campus were born. Um, that's, that's kind of a whole different kind of mind-blowing thing, and, and, and the one-third that was alive was two. So, yeah, that, um, that is a little different. Um, it, but, you know, what's neat, though, from my standpoint is that I was at kind of College Park when the whole church was like this. Actually, I was even before that. I'm the 36th member of the church, to give you some idea of how long ago that was. But, um, but coming here to Fishers is sort of like throwback. It, it just reminds of, of the way the church used to be. And even the fact that they've asked me to preach is kind of throwback since I'm not on staff and to have a lay person speak. I don't think you'd have a lay person speak at uh, North Indy. And, uh, of course, after today, you may have the same policy here. Um, <laughs> but, um, but all that to say, this is really fun to be here and, and to see a, a church like this. Um, it, if you've been with the study of 1 Peter that Mark has taken us through and some other speakers, 
then you know that kind of the theme, the ongoing theme of the book has been living in exile, right? And uh, what Peter has done up to this point in the book through verse 10, what, what Mark went through last week of chapter 2, is he has sort of laid out a theology of who we are as believers living after the time of Christ and what that means for us in a world that isn't our home. So he started out, if you remember, he actually addresses the book to um, all those who reside as aliens in in these different places. And then he spent like the first half of chapter 1 rehearsing all the privileges we have because we're living after Christ's death that those who lived before didn't have, that we now have. And then when he moved from chapter 1 into chapter 2 and what Mark went over last week, he started talking about who we are in Christ and what does it mean that we have been called out. What does it mean that, like he says, in, um, that we are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? And, and, and so he's moved into those things. And then he, when he gets to our text today, and really through the rest of the letter, he turns from discussing what is the theology of who we are and what we are to now what does that mean and how do we apply it? How should we live as a result of who we are? And in the two verses we're going to go through today, what he specifically does is he says who you are in Christ should affect how you live And the fact that you are aliens and strangers or sojourners and exiles, whatever word you want to use, should mean that you don't look like the natives of this world. That your life can't look like the lives of those who aren't the called out people of God. And he'll specifically say in one respect, here's what what should not be a part of your life, and then here's what should be a part of your life. So that's what we're going to go through today. And it really kicks off kind of the remainder of the book where he is applying all this theology that he's given us. So, does that make sense? So as, we start to, so, so, as we start to work through the verses, the key to understanding these two verses is to understand its context, and its context is really the first phrase of verse 11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, or again, in ESV, I think it's sojourners and exiles. That is what is kind of sheds light on everything that he's going to say, because notice, what's the, what's the word before aliens and strangers. It's as. So he's saying, I urge you as these people, don't do this, but do this. And if you think about it, what's true of a a stranger from somebody who's not from around here, if you see them? What's true is that they stand out, right? If you see someone from another country and maybe they speak English with a heavy accent or something like that, you, you know that they aren't from around here. And why is that? Because they don't talk like us, they don't look like us, they don't act like us. And Peter is saying the same thing should be true about us. Why is that? Because we have different priorities, we have different values, we have different goals, everything's different for us. So when we're living in a world that is completely opposite from us as to what they're living for, we should not look like them. We should stand out. We shouldn't try to stand out. I think Mark talked about this. We shouldn't try to be weird. We just do. You know, I went to China several years ago, and as a six-foot-five American who only speaks English, I didn't have to walk around saying, hi, I'm Rob, I'm not from around here, right? As a matter of fact, I was was going through the Forbidden City in, in Beijing, and I was looking at a display, and I didn't 
to be honest, didn't even really notice I'd walked up in front of a, walked up behind a group of people that were also standing there looking at it. And I noticed after a while, I started feeling a little self-conscious that they weren't looking at the display anymore. They were turning around and looking at me and just giggling over how tall I was. You, and in that same way, we shouldn't have to work at standing out. We stand out because we're different. We stand out because we have a different citizenship. And, you know, I was thinking about that, too, from the standpoint of this past year. Hasn't it been nice with all that's happened, even up through this weekend and Friday and yesterday, to be able to say that this isn't our true home? To be able to say, yeah, we're invested, we care, we're, we're passionate maybe about it, but depending on what side you were on and whether your side won or lost, at least you didn't have to say my whole world is at stake here because in my world they don't hold elections and nobody's changing power, right? Isn't that been great? Well, implicit in the admonition then that when he says, as aliens and strangers, I want you to, be, uh, to abstain from fleshly lust, implicit in that is that because we are from another world, our world must have something better. See, he wouldn't just say, don't do this just because we don't do it. Just don't, don't do it just because it's wrong. If that's all he said, then the Bible just becomes a big rule book. That just becomes, that's legalism. Instead, what he, what's implicit here is because you're, if he, the, the fact that he puts it in those terms, aliens and strangers, means that by not, if you're going to say no to what the world has, and we'll get to what that is here in a second, if we're going to say no to that, it's because our world has something much better. And if our world does have something much better, then when we say yes to this world, it's not only sinful, it's not only wrong, it's foolish. You ever been to a third world country? When you got back, did you think to yourself, man, I wish I could still be, still be there, still living there? Because everything there just seemed easier, it seemed more convenient, just was more comfortable there. My guess is you probably didn't. What you probably did was you got home and thought, I'm so thankful for the experience, and I'm so thankful that I'm home. Because everything here is nicer, easier, and more comfortable. And the thought of exchanging what we have here in the States for a third world country, short of as a part of a mission, makes no sense at all, right? And I think Peter would make the same point. Because when we give in to the lust of the flesh, we're turning our back on the rewards of our true home. We're essentially saying that we don't want paradise-level, heavenly-rated joys. We'd rather have the passing pleasures of the here and now. When we choose only things of this world, we give up the joy. We give up two things. We give up the joy of walking with our Savior and experiencing a little bit of the kingdom with him as we go through this world. And then ultimately, we, we have the potential of giving up completely the experience of the next world so that we don't, eventually won't even get to experience that kingdom. And Peter would look at us and just go, you're nuts. Because when we do that, what we say is we look at the beauty of redemption, the beauty of our Savior, the beauty of the community of faith, the, the, the expectation of glory, and we go, eh, no thanks. I'm good. I'll take what I can see here versus that. I'll inexplicably live by sight rather than by faith. And it makes absolutely no sense if we have an understanding of what our real home is and what our real world is. It's interesting that he talks about specifically passions or lusts. If you look at, if you look at verse 11, what he says is, I want you to abstain from the passions, or depending on your translation, the lusts, fleshly lusts. 
He could have said, I want you to abstain from sin, right? He could have said, abstain from all the bad things, abstain from the sinful acts, but he doesn't. He talks about passions and lust. Why do you think that is? Well, where do all the sinful actions start? They start in our minds, right? In our hearts, depending on what part of the body you want to use. We never, we never make an act without first hatching it inside of our mind. James talks about this. James says in James 1:14, he says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. See, nobody starts out with death, right? You start out with lust, which becomes sin, which becomes death. This, by the way, is why Jesus spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 talking about, hey, you've heard it said, don't do these things and you're okay, but let me explain what the real intent behind the law was, and the real intent behind the law was, don't even have it in your heart. And that's the same point that Peter's making here. The first step isn't that we sin. The first step is wanting something other than God to fill the God-sized hole in our, in our heart or in our lives. It's saying that I want something that, that I'm going to seek for satisfaction apart from God and put that here. So when he says, abstain from fleshly lust, what he's saying is, I am calling you to be vigilant in guarding your desires. And as to what those are then, what, are, what the fleshly lusts are, well, probably all of us could define that, right? If, you, if, if, if any of us stood up and said, okay, what, what, how would you say what is a fleshly lust or a worldly passion? We'd probably all be able to come up with a list, in some cases, maybe a list that would be personal to us, things like sexual immorality and, and things like that. But I think for our standpoint, it makes sense to maybe define it a little more broadly because really what he's talking about isn't just specific sins. He's talking about kind of a whole world and life view, a whole, pers- a whole direction of life. Paul in Philippians 3 says that there are, he describes certain people, or not, he describes the unsaved as enemies of the cross. And it's interesting because he basically says there are two types of people. There are people standing at the foot of the cross, and there are people who are enemies of the cross. There is nobody else. But he said one of the characteristics of the enemies of the cross is they make a god out of their appetite. Or in the Greek, what it actually says is they make a god of their belly. And really what it means is they worship their desires. And, and, and what the enemies of the cross ultimately do is they say, in the throne of my heart, in the throne of my life, I take my happiness and I put it there and I say everything I do in life is serving that. The whole point of my existence, everything I do is to eventually, is to ultimately satisfy my desires, satisfy my thirst for happiness. And so that's what's going to govern everything I do. Even the things I do for others that appear selfless ultimately are for me because it's all about my happiness and my satisfaction. Lust in this case or anything we seek for satisfaction apart from God. John talks about it's the lust, of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the world, the boastful pride of life. And he says, if you love those things, the love of the Father is not in you. All of that, I think, is in- encompassed when he says here, the lust of the flesh or the passions of the flesh. It's more than just specific sins. It's an overall way of looking at life, and it's in complete opposition to the biblical view which is why he says they can't be a part of our life. That's why he says you have to abstain from them and why they wage war against the soul. That's pretty stark language, isn't it? And it's interesting that he doesn't say they wage war against us, right? They wage war against our soul. 
And the fact that he uses soul probably means there's an eternal component to this. The dangers here aren't just you could have a bad reputation. They aren't just you could have a tough life. No, the dangers are your eternal soul. If you follow this world and life view long enough, if you go down that road to where this characterizes your life, then ultimately you're showing you aren't called out, you aren't one of the holy people of God called for God's own possession, and you are going to be damned. That's what he's saying. Short of that, however, I think he's saying something else that is even true in this life. And that is, when we start to give in to the lusts of the flesh, and we do that, and it may be, you know, it, we're bombarded by this all the time, right? We're bombarded continually with a message that says, this life is all about you. This life is about you making you happy. You have to take care of you, right? We hear that message all the time. It's not necessarily um, in some kind of illicit ways. You turn on TV, turn on the radio, surf the internet, doesn't matter. That's the message of the world. So, that, so that's, part of the, that's part of that waging war. But what happens is as we give in to that, if we start to dally with that a little bit, we can start to train our soul to love something other than God. And what happens when that happens is that if we go down that road again too far and we keep training our soul that way and we don't renew our mind and we're not in the Word and we're not in prayer and we're not in the fellowship of the saints such that our mind gets renewed, but we keep going down that path, then what ultimately happens is we lose the ability to appreciate the beauty of God. We lose the ability to appreciate the beauty of the gospel. We lose the desire to worship God. We lose the ability to enjoy the love that's inherent in the community of faith. All those things start to get chipped away, and all of those are rungs on the ladder to ultimate destruction. All of that is included then in that waging war against the soul. If you notice the verbs that he uses in that verse, he talks about abstain and he talks about wage war. What we do, we abstain, and then what the passions do, which is wage war. Do you notice the tense of those verbs? They're both present, right? He doesn't say they did wage or they waged. It's they wage and we abstain. They're both present tense. So what does that mean? What that means is this is ongoing. What this means is this war never ends. We'll never reach a point this side of eternity where we don't have to worry about the war, where we don't have to worry about the battle, where we don't have to worry about abstaining. It will always be with us, no matter how much we age, how much we mature, our station in life. Short of Christ coming back or our death, we're going to be in this war. And so what's important to remember is that we never, ever, ever give up. And we never forget that ultimately the victory will be worth it one day. And that since we are of a different world, since we are aliens and strangers, and since this isn't where we live, that we have a power in us which is greater than the power in this world, and that it will be worth it to live for another world and not for this one. And that ultimately we are no longer slaves to the lust that we're avoiding. With any war, there's going to be battles won, there's going to be battles lost, right? But what we have to keep in mind at all times is no matter what it looks like on any given day, ultimately this fight is worth it and I can't ever stop. We can't ever stop. Our vigilance has to last from salvation to glory. And here's the great thing, though. Peter doesn't just say, or, or we know that Peter doesn't mean here 
hey, go get them. World's a nasty, ugly place. Be careful out there. Now go. That's, that can't be what he means. We know because of comparing to other texts that we don't fight this battle alone. Again, we're God's own possession. We've been called out. We're his holy people. Jesus said, you can do nothing apart. Without me, you can't do anything. So we know that ultimately fighting this, we fight this in the strength of the Spirit. We fight this with our Savior. And if that's the case then, then the fight itself is worth it because the fight itself will lead us to be closer to him. Think about this with me. You'll never know how strong an adversary is unless you resist. If you give in to sin all the time, you'll never know how strong sin is. The only way you really know how strong sin is and temptation is, is if you resist it. If, you, if somebody here, if, you, if one of you came up to me after the service and said, give me your money or I'm going to pound you, okay, first I'd be a little surprised you're here in church this morning, okay? But secondly, if I then just meekly pull out my wallet and say, here, I have no idea how strong you are. If, on the other hand, I drop down and say, you messed with the wrong accountant, let's go, all right, and we square off, then I find out how strong you are. Well, the same is true of sin. You only understand how strong sin is when you resist it, which, by the way, is why Christ's life was so unbelievable, because unlike us, he never gave in, which means he felt the full effect of the strength of sin. Now, stay with me here. You're probably wondering, where the heck are you going with this? Because here's the, the other side of that. The other side of that is that you'll never know how strong the Spirit can be in you unless you resist in its strength. It's when you abstain that you understand the Spirit's strength. It's when you abstain that you understand what being close to your Savior means. That's the only way. If you give in, you'll never know the sweetness of that. It's when you walk and, and you resist and say, that's not me, I'm not a part of that, I am not of this world, I am called out, I'm a holy, per, holy, holy man or holy woman of God, and so I am going to live differently in the strength of the Spirit. That you full, that's when you fully appreciate what the Spirit is and what the Savior is. That means that, it, that means that abstinence or abstaining is a wonderful thing because it brings us closer to the Savior. Not only does it save our soul, ultimately, but it brings us closer to the Savior in this world. Well, as we go on to verse 12, he says, um, he, he talks about how those lusts then should bear fruit in how we act, in that we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And that's what he addresses, is that now that we're, we've talked about the lusts themselves, now we can talk about right behavior. And part of this world and living as aliens in this world is to make sure our behavior in front of the natives is beyond reproach. And look there, why is that? It's not just for our reputation, but it's ultimately for the glory of God. When we live as we should, we bring glory to the one whose name we claim and whose spirit we depend on. Jesus talked about this also in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that as they observe your acts, they will give glory to your Father in heaven. How we live affects people's perception of God. How we live can bring glory to him. This really goes along with what we learned last week, what Mark taught us in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. In verse 9, it says, um, the reason that you have been called out is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And Mark talked about this last week, that one, that one of the reasons we are called out is to proclaim the excellencies of God. And if you combine that with verse 12, then apparently not only is that a verbal thing, but that is also in how we live, that we live a righteous life in front of the Gentiles, and that causes the excellencies of God to be proclaimed even if we don't say anything. Well, that lends a weightiness to our, our behavior, doesn't it? Because if that's true, then the, con- then the converse of that is true. You know, if you looked at a math equation that said our good behavior in front of the Gentiles equals the glory of God, then the other side of that equation would be our bad behavior in front of the Gentiles equals no glory for God, right? So if we lead lives that look a lot like those around us, if we start to blend in more and more and there's really nothing different about us, then we take away from the glory of God. And not only that, but we also take away from the message of the gospel. Because what we communicate, if we say, oh yeah, I'm a believer, but then people look at our lives and there's nothing different about them, then what we say is, well, ultimately I have a religion just like everybody else does. I don't have a relationship, I have a religion. And it's a religion that I don't really let get in the way of anything I really want to do. And if that's what we have, then that's a nice, safe religion that the world's fine with. See, the world can tolerate that. It's when we bring a gospel to them that says, no, the gospel replaces your life. The gospel demands everything from you. That's what they find dangerous. But if we live a life, if we preach that, but we live a life that says that's not what what is true of our lives at all, then we take all the teeth out of the gospel and we make Jesus safe to reject. That's what we do. And in that case, we give absolutely no glory to God at all. See, at the end of the day, if we look like the natives, we talk like the natives, and we act like the natives, then we sound a little foolish claiming to be an alien, and we make that so there's ultimately no point at all to our calling. Since God's glory is at stake in that case, he takes that pretty seriously. You think about it, in the Bible, probably the biggest example of someone who really blows it publicly is David and Bathsheba, right? We probably all know the story of that. But if you remember right, Nathan the prophet, when he comes to him, he tells him that kind of little parable about the poor man and the rich man, gets David all up in arms, and then Nathan goes, that's you, right? You are the man. And after that, David completely implodes. He completely folds, right? He, he, he confesses, yes, you're right. I was horribly wrong." please ask God to forgive me. And Nathan says, God forgives you. But then he goes on and says something that's really interesting in light of our text here. And this is in 2 Samuel 12, 13. He says, this is Nathan speaking. The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. You get that? He says, because you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? See, here's what we have to remember. If our righteous behavior glorifies God, and then our unrighteous behavior doesn't glorify God, what was the whole point of the entire created existence? Why did God create? Why did God create us? Why did God create everything else? Ultimately, to glorify himself. Why did Christ come to earth? Yes, to die, but ultimately redemption was here to glorify God. What did the angels say to the shepherds 
when they announced Christ's birth. Glory to God in the highest, right? First thing out of their mouths. It's all about God's glory. So if we act in a way that takes away from that glory, that is not something that God takes lightly. So just as the stakes are high in regard to our soul and fleshly lust, so the stakes are high in how we conduct ourselves in front of a watching world. We're never acting just for ourselves. It's not just us. Now that's the sober side of this, okay? But there's also a hugely encouraging part of this because look at the rest of that verse in verse 12. He says, so the reason you want to keep your behavior excellent is so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they, observe, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, no one's totally sure what the day of visitation is. It could be judgment day. It could be the day that they trust Christ when he comes to visit them and they become redeemed. We're not sure. But either way, what, seems to be, what he seems to be saying here is that these people eventually become believers. And look what kind of people they are. These aren't what we call seekers, right? These are people that are slandering you probably because you're a believer. They're calling you an evildoer. They're accusing you falsely. Later on in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter's going to talk about how you, you used to do things that you no longer do, and the people you used to do them with now resent the fact that you no longer do them, and so they malign you. It could be that's what he's referring to here, that these are people who get honked off that you no longer value what they value. And so they now resent you because you're a Christian. They accuse you because you're a Christian. And yet those people, people that want nothing to do with the gospel, people you're not going to sit down with with your Bible and say, let me take you through the gospel, people who want nothing to do with God, those people through our righteous behavior will eventually come to God in some cases. And that is an amazing opportunity and an amazing privilege. So yes, there is a weightiness to our, to our actions, and there's a responsibility that we have to keep in mind, but there is also this incredible privilege and opportunity that God gives us that we literally can be this, this incredible tool for evangelism just by living righteously in front of a world that otherwise would be antagonistic to both of us and the gospel. Do you get that? Do you get the opportunity that's there? Do you get the privilege that God's given us there? How much He loves us, that He allows that, that just through our activity, we bring people who hate God to God? Now, there are two implications to that truth. One is, there's no such thing as a mundane day. There's no such thing as a boring job, and I say that as an accountant. There's no such thing as a low-value position in the world or in the kingdom because everything has import when it has the opportunity to bring people to the throne. My wife and I were talking this week, and she was saying how sometimes you read these different Christian authors and different books, and they've written 800 books, and they have a blog that has a zillion followers, and they're doing all these things, and you see, like, man, what is my life compared to that? And what it is, is it's meaningful because there's no boring days. There's no mundane days. There's nothing that's, that's of little value because every day is a day where we can represent the name of Christ and potentially bring someone who otherwise wants nothing to the gospel to the king. 
But here's the second implication. The second implication is you can't do this if you are giving in to the lust of the flesh. You can't do this if your feet are firmly planted in this world and your focus is on yourself. Because again, who are these people? In verse 12, what are they doing? They are slandering you. They're slandering us. These aren't people we get along with. These aren't people we have a natural affinity toward. These are people who dislike us and do mean things to us. So if our focus is on ourselves or if our focus is on this world, then there's no way we respond by saying, well, I hope my behavior will be such that it brings them to the Lord. No, our behavior will be, I want to go back after them and I hate them because they're doing these mean things to me. The only people who can fulfill verse 12 are exiles, are people who say, I live in a different world, I live for different priorities, my mind is full of Christ, so as these people unjustly accuse me, all I can think about is continuing to act righteously and following my Savior because that might be a chance that it actually leads them to Christ. Non-exiles don't fulfill verse 12. So, What can we take away from this passage? One of the things I've been convicted about, you know, I've I've been in the church for forever. I went to Christian schools. I've heard, you know, seven zillion sermons and Bible lessons. One of the things God's really convicted me about over the last couple of years is I need to make sure I have takeaways, that I never just get up, walk away, and go, yep, that was good. What's for lunch, right? So here are some takeaways for you. I mean, there's a lot in this text, isn't there? There's a lot here. But here are four takeaways if you want to write them down or if you want to see me after after the, the, sort of say, see me after class, but see me after the service. And they all start the same. So once you get the first part down, then you just have to hit kind of quotation marks. Be vigilant about guarding your affections and desires because your soul is at stake. I'll say that again. Be vigilant about guarding your affections and desires because your soul is at stake. Second one, be vigilant about guarding your affections and desires because your righteous behavior in front of a watching world is at stake. Because your righteous behavior in front of a watching world is at stake. Third one, be vigilant about guarding your affections and desires because the glory of God is at stake. And lastly, be vigilant about guarding your affections and desires because the salvation of those around you could be at stake. Here's the thing, just to summarize this. The worst thing we can do is to live like citizens of the world. The best thing we can do is to remember that we're exiles from heaven whose desires should be set on God so that our lives give witness to our great Savior and lead people who otherwise wouldn't know Him to Him. God's given us an amazing opportunity. Let's not waste it by giving in to the allure of the rewards and temptations of a world that's not our own. Let's instead celebrate our status as God's own possession and glorify Him with lives worthy of His calling. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Father, for this text. Thank you that there's so much here. Thank you that um, you don't leave us alone in a world that's not ours. Thank you that you tell us about the world that truly is ours. Your Spirit is here every, every minute of every day to help. And I just thank you that all of the things that we've gone through today are true, some of which are sobering, some of which are hugely encouraging. But Father, we know that if we live lives that, don't look, that, that, are, that are true to our heritage, true to our citizenship, 
that there is a benefit to that far beyond anything we can see, that there is reason to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, please remind us of that through your Spirit this week. Bring these words, this text to our, to our minds this week, Father. Don't let us walk out of here unchanged. In Christ's name, amen.